Welcome, friends, to another edition of Economic Update, a weekly program devoted to the economic dimensions of our lives, jobs, debts, incomes, our own and those of our children. I'm your host, Richard Wolf. I want to begin today by talking to you about a uh, short appearance in the Guardian newspaper in the United Kingdom of an interesting research article. On that 18th of November article, you will find records of the last 50 years, count them, half a century, of advertisements attacking climate change theory as scientific nonsense, as unproven, as mere hypothesis, and all the rest. Ads demonstrably shown to have been paid for, organized, and choreographed by the fossil fuel industry that didn't want it. And I want to talk to you about that article and about that research. Capitalism provides profits to enable companies who earn those profits to use those profits to promote more profits and to overcome any obstacle, including inconvenient scientific research. Now, of course, scientists disagree. That's how science is supposed to work. A scientist comes up, has a different perspective. The earlier scientists have to prove that they were right. There's a debate. Evidence is presented. And then one changes one's mind depending on the preponderance of the evidence. So to show that scientists have disagreed or that a scientist who believed one thing once and who believes something else later doesn't prove that science doesn't work. It's a demonstration of precisely how it works. But here's the important point. When scientists disagree, they're disagreeing about science. They're not disagreeing because they have, what? Profits at stake. That's what companies do. If they don't like the science, they are free to use their profits to undercut, to refute, to deny, to do anything and everything. And these documents printed by The Guardian on the 18th of November show they stop at nothing to get science squelched. Here's another thing to think about. The money that the companies use to dispute and undercut science, that's money they get from selling their product, which means you and I, when we buy the product, are paying for the deception that led us to buy the product in the first place. Wow. It's part of that lesson. Advertising is something we pay for that is done to shape how we work. We are paying to be manipulated. Well, the solution here is clear. Scientists ought to be free to debate, to do research, to question each other, for sure. That's how science advances. That has to be maintained. But what ought to be allowed, not allowed, is corporations to get in there. They have no business. That's not what they're for. And they either shouldn't be allowed to exist or they shouldn't be allowed to do that. And any scientist who takes money, who is paid, who is influenced, If that can be determined, it should be treated just like insider trading is treated in the stock market. You're punished. You lose your academic position. This is serious business. 
Last point. You know, in a rational economy, we would say to any company where science shows they're out of business because they're doing something that's bad for the society, that we as a society recognize that's no fault of these people. They did what they did while they were producing because it was understood to be valuable. Now science has changed. It isn't. We should take care of them, find them new jobs, maintain their income as they go from the old job to the new job. Come on, we're smart enough to do all of that. That way we could accommodate what science teaches without creating in anyone, worker or capitalist, an incentive to undermine the scientific growth of our civilization. This is serious business, folks, and leaving it in the hands of big corporations was proven to be a disaster to our climate, and we should at least learn from that. My second update has to do with the number one national chain of drugstores called the CVS Corporation. It just announced that it's closing 900 CVS drugstores across the United States over the next three years. That's 10% of all the stores will be closed. You know what this means? It means that a private company seeking to make private profits for itself and its shareholders will make it harder for millions of Americans to get to a drugstore because there are going to be so many fewer of them. And of course, what CVS is doing is likely to be done by Walgreens or any of the other major drug company chains in the country. This decision, which makes life harder By the way, particularly in rural areas, particularly in low-density parts of the country in terms of population, they're going to have a harder time getting to a drugstore, a harder time getting their prescriptions filled, a long wait because they'll have to drive 20, 30, 40 miles to get to the nearest place. Nor is the problem going to be solved by having the dollar stores step in, which is what the industry expects, your dollar general, your your dollar company, little store at the corner, a convenience store, is now going to have a little drug section. Yeah, but you know what? Because it wasn't profitable for CVS, it's not going to be profitable for the dollar store either. So what they're going to do is a pale imitation of what we once had. They're not going to maintain the inventory of drugs that allows us to get what we need quickly at the drugstore. All of that is being cut back. It's part of the decline of the standard of living. It's undertaken by big corporations to make more money at our expense. That's what's going on. Pretending otherwise changes nothing. My third update, well, I admit I was scandalized by this. I know that the U.S. government, because it tells us that, supports capitalist industry and capitalism as the system in its foreign policy and its military actions around the world. It clearly defines who its enemies are, the enemies of capitalism that it goes after. And it would have been naive not to expect that the same mentality operates internally, that when agencies of the government decides who inside the United States might be a critic or a threat, or an enemy of capitalism, they go after them too. And so I come to the update. Over the last few weeks, there have been revelations about the assassination of Malcolm X. It turns out, and we have this from the the state's attorney in New York, 
you know, a very, very attorney general, Cyrus Vance, and we have it from the judge that Cyrus Vance spoke to. He asked the judge who agreed to exonerate the two African-American men who were sent to jail for decades on the charge now clearly denied by everybody that they assassinated or were part of who assassinated Malcolm X. And what Cyrus Vance said, I want you all to hear again. In his testimony to the judge, the attorney general here in New York, Cyrus Vance, said, J. Edgar Hoover, the head of the FBI, so the highest level there is in that agency, instructed witnesses in that trial of those two men to lie, to not reveal upon questioning or in any other way that they were paid informants of the FBI. That is unethical. That is illegal. When someone testifies, the defense has the right to know what relationship exists between the prosecutional government on the one hand and this witness. You have to reveal that this is a paid informant. The government didn't. It violated the rights of those two men to whom apologies are given that their lives were taken basically from them by sticking them in jail. And then the question has to be raised. And this is not my fault to raise this question. It's what the FBI's behavior is. What was the FBI doing that for? Why deny that? Why in that way arrange for the conviction of those two men who were innocent? What was the FBI hiding? What was the FBI's role in the assassination? And if it was doing that to Malcolm, did it have a role with Martin Luther King? Those are the questions that have to be asked when you finally know, cold stone from the horse's mouth, that the government prosecutions lies in order to defend, in its view, a system that apparently requires that sort of behavior. Wow. The last update I'll have time for today has to do with estate taxes. Much nonsense is written about this, and mostly nothing is written about this. So I want to make sure you know. So what is an estate tax? It is a tax on whatever wealth you leave to your descendants or to anyone you choose when you die. It's your estate, sometimes called inheritance taxes, because it is a tax levied on the money passed to whoever you leave whatever wealth you have when you die. Okay. Estate taxes in the United States. From 1942 to 1976, that's most of the post-war period, the top rate that had to be paid on estates, get ready, was 77% here in the United States. Anything you left over, and get this part, over $60,000. In other words, anyone who left more than $60,000 when he or she died, 77% of every dollar over $60,000 had to go to Uncle Sam as a tax. Your descendants would receive 33, excuse me, 23. 
pennies out of every dollar. The government would get 77 pennies out of every dollar, over 60,000. What's the logic here? The logic is the so-called level playing field. Rich people cannot leave to their children vast amounts of money because that gives those children a completely different shot in life than children who, through no fault of their own, are born to people who don't have money to leave when they die. And to make things fair, societies have levied inheritance and estate taxes, and we as a nation did too. By the way, that still allowed people to leave 60 grand or much more and pay taxes, but it, it wasn't an equalizer. It never came close to that, but it was a step in that direction. So let me tell you where it is now. It was 77% on everything over 60 grand. Here it is now. Ready? It's 40%, not 77. And here's the really good news. It's not every dollar over 60 grand. It's every dollar over $23.4 million. So if that's what you leave to your family, you don't have to pay anything, 23 million or less. It's a gift to the richest amongst us. That's all it is. And it's a major contributor to the inequality this society suffers from. We've come to the end of the first part of today's show. And as always, I want to thank all of you whose support makes these shows possible. To learn more about the different ways you can be supportive, please go to patreon.com slash economic update or visit our website, democracyatwork.info. We've also recently released a new hardcover edition of Understanding Marxism, available now. To get your copy of this new edition or other books we've published, our website again, democracyatwork.info slash books. Please stay with us. We'll be right back with today's special guest, author and professor, Melissa Scanlon. Welcome back, friends, to the second half of today's economic update. I'm very pleased to bring to our microphones and our cameras a professor from the University of Wisconsin in Milwaukee, Melissa Scanlon. She works there in the School of Freshwater Sciences and also in the University of Wisconsin's law school. She has started and built many social economy enterprises. In 2019, the U.S. State Department awarded her a Fulbright Senior Scholar position in Spain to study the remarkable developments there of cooperatives that are leaders in sustainable enterprise. That work resulted in her new book, which is called Prosperity in the Fossil Free Economy. And I was struck particularly by its subtitle, cooperatives, and the design of sustainable businesses. So let me begin by welcoming Professor Scanlon to our program. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me on the show. Glad to. So I'm going to jump right in. The history of capitalism has seen many movements for reform, programs to change the tax system, the education system, laws, rules, regulations, and so on. 
But one thing that has always struck me as an economic historian is that very, very few of them dare to go near the question of the very organization, the internal organization of enterprises as being a problem that needs a solution and then offering what those solutions uh, might be. And yet your approach immediately struck me because the sustainability problem, which is almost universally recognized to be an urgent issue, is something that you do approach by looking precisely into the organizations of enterprise and coming up with ideas of what might be done to change them in order to solve the sustainability issue. So could you tell us whether I've gotten that right? And if I have, why that approach struck you as worthy of your attention and writing this book? Well, you zeroed right in on the main thing. I came to realize that environmental law, which is, has been my field for the last 20 years, was not resulting in enough improvement. So we have uncontrolled growth in greenhouse gases, which are destabilizing our global climate as a prime example. And neither is governmental negotiation resulting in enough improvements. People are extremely frustrated with the inability of government to take steps to prioritize environmental sustainability. Then when I started looking beyond the environment to social indicators, the externalities from business continue to appear. And Thomas Piketty's work gave us the ability to see how our economic system generates inequality leading to greater wealth gaps. So since the mid-1970s, the top 10% of Americans kept increasing their share of income. And by 2007, they had 50% of all the income. That's because the benefits of GDP growth and stock market value disproportionately go to those who invest rather than those who rely on their labor to earn money. That got me thinking about the enterprises that are earning that money, right? So that's why I wanted to look at the, the business design. I wanted to identify who's taking the lead and what kind of business structure support sustainability. And my research led to discoveries that I've outlined in the book, Prosperity in the Fossil-Free Economy, which dives into this alternative business model that can uh, pursue the triple bottom line of sustainability, social goals, and financial goals. And that is the cooperative business form. Well, you know, I, that's what I want really to tease out of, of you now and to recommend your book because it does that, because it answers or at least offers part of an answer about why co-ops and worker co-ops ought to be on the agenda for people to learn about, think about, debate and discuss. They have their strengths and weaknesses like everything else, but they are an alternative that hasn't gotten anywhere near the attention it deserves. Or at least let me put that as a question. Do you have a sense of your own ending up intrigued by, interested in co-ops and how they might better address the problem? Is that something happening broadly in the social sciences? Do you encounter others in your fields or allied fields that are coming to this? Is, is this an emerging, is it fair to say that it's an emerging consciousness or recognition? 
Yes, uh, you hear about it more and more, both in the popular press and in academia, but there isn't enough recognition yet. And so when I went to write this book, there just wasn't that much out there on this. And there were no books that were bridging and critically looking at environmental sustainability and how that's tied to the cooperative business design and how cooperatives can be leaders in that area. So I want to frame this more about thinking about the democratic economy. And we often talk about the climate in terms of tragedy and avoiding suffering. And I want to tip that on its head and think about uh, redesigning how business produces broadly shared wealth that can allow us to prosper while we transform to a more democratic economy that doesn't rely on fossil fuels. So we have this enormous opportunity for transformation in our economy uh, as we shift off of fossil fuels. And it's an opportunity to kind of rethink how these businesses are designed so that we have enterprises that are more democratic. And what I mean by that is where we have more owners governed democratically, where each worker has one vote, where sustainability and deep decarbonization are built into the core purpose of business. And businesses are really improving communities and sharing prosperity as part of their core design. Well, you know, uh, I've taught occasionally in business schools, and I have a lot of friends who are graduates of or teachers in business school. So in a way, you are confronting, in the very words you just used, you are confronting all of those folks, many of whom are sympathetic in some general way with environmentalism and so forth. You are confronting them, though, with having to rethink whether the tried and true basic principle that business is about profit maximization and business is about profit as the bottom line maybe has to now be faced not as a truism, but as a problem to be overcome or to be solved in some way. Are you finding resistance along those lines? I think that I would reframe that from a confrontation to an invitation. And that we can see from looking at these major metrics of social progress and environmental progress that we are headed in the wrong direction. Uh, And so a serious interrogation of the business structure that's at the heart of that is overdue. And I would say it's an invitation because it's an invitation to lead a better life, to have you know, less violence in society, to have more people who are uh, living in ways that are enriching. And I also want to just emphasize that these cooperatives, they, they can be organized as not-for-profit, but they also can be organized as for-profit enterprises. The distinction is that they're multi-purpose, that they have a purpose based on ethics, values, and principles that are shared internationally. And these business forms are a lot more common than most people think. They operate in most sectors of the economy in most countries in the world. And um, they're, uh, 
there are all different forms of them, insurance cooperatives, energy cooperatives, mutual, water mutuals, ones that are organized around workers, organized around farmers, organized around consumers. I mean, there are so many different variations on this theme that uh, your colleagues in business schools could be teaching about uh, to uh, really uh, harness the interest that people have in sustainability and in trying to rethink how we are interacting in our global economy. I couldn't agree more, but I guess I have a little bit different experience because my colleagues in the economics, which is what I've taught most of my life, have wanted to teach a generation or several generations that somehow, and it's always quite nebulous and magical, maximizing profit is somehow automatically going to lead us to all the other good things in life that we are concerned about so that we can kind of shortcut. We don't have to worry about sustainability and all the others because the pursuit of profit is this magical thing that will get the best output for the biggest majority in some way, which I have never sorted out why I should believe that. And we get into a little bit of tension with my colleagues when I say to them, wouldn't it be more sensible to recognize that we have multiple objectives, that they are different, and that we have to be concerned about our business activities in terms of all of these objectives, not take the kind of weird shortcut that by maximizing one thing, all the others are going to somehow take care of themselves this is a kind of, if you allow the philosophy, essentialism that we ought to, ought to be skeptical about. Uh, l- let, me, let me move us toward the end because we have limited time. What do you think is the biggest resistance to getting people to think about cooperative organizations as at least part of a solution uh, to the sustainability issue? Well, I think you... You uh, highlight that when you talk about the conflict with your business colleagues. I mean, some business schools are starting to teach sustainability. We have um, major shifts in the multinational and the investor-owned world where this is this uh, sustainability is a focus. Now, the the question is: Is it a buzzword, and is it going to mean anything? Um, how many business schools are actually teaching about cooperatives? Hardly any. How many law schools are teaching about social enterprise design? Hardly any. Um, So without people educated in this business model, it will be somewhat underutilized. And one of the things I found in Spain, too, where they do have um, a very robust worker-owner cooperative sector, they passed laws in 2011 to promote the social economy and set goals for it's flourishing that reflected their appreciation of all this adds to the economy beyond financial returns. And so we can see that a serious effort to create an ecosystem of support involves legal reforms and education. You can get a lot more details about this in my book, Prosperity in the Fossil Free Economy, uh, where I have actual examples of leading businesses that have been able to balance uh, multiple purposes, uh, including pursuing financial, but not have that uh, overshadow everything else. 
Well, this is a very, very important work. We brought you on the program. You have done exactly what we hoped. And I hope people read the book and understand that you and your work are part of a growing recognition that has to grow a good bit further so that the lip service given to the urgency of the climate catastrophes that we face results in real changes in every arena that we can find. Thank you very much for sharing your work, for producing this book. And to my audience, this is something that is beginning to gel this cooperative movement. And that's part of what we are. And I invite you to be with us again next week when we will continue looking at these kinds of questions. This is Richard Wolff. Looking forward to speaking with you again.